just to be safe, every time I write about a public official, I print it out and send a copy of it to them with my driver's license, just so they're aware of it. <laughs> they let you have a driver's license? Not a real one. <laughs> freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. I'm joined today by three of my FIRE colleagues. We're going to try and cover everything that's been going on in the state of Florida in recent months, as those who pay attention to FIRE's website and our social media feeds know, there have been a number of bills introduced into the state legislature, um, actions taken by law enforcement that have captured not only our attention, but also national headlines. And so I figured it's probably about time we do a What's Going On in Florida podcast. So to join me in discussing what is going on in Florida, I have Joe Cohn, a repeat on the show. Joe is, of course, the legislative and policy director here at FIRE. I also have Aaron Terr, who is the director of public advocacy, and Adam Steinbaugh, an attorney in our litigation department. Gentlemen, welcome back onto the show, all of you. Thank you. So Adam, I want to start with you because on March 16th, we got an update in FIRE's challenge to the Stop Woke Act. Uh, this is an act that passed into law, of course, that we've covered previously on the show. But if you could give our listeners a reminder of what the lawsuit is about and what this action uh, that the court or the ruling that the court handed down on March 16th was all about. Well, I appreciate your vote of confidence in my ability to convey civil procedure uh, to our listeners at the start of the show uh, and not put everyone to sleep. But if you are operating heavy machinery, you might want to pull over to the side of the road. I will try and keep it uh, entertaining. Uh, so fire sued over the Stop Woke Act, uh, the, the application of the Stop Woke Act to higher education. Uh, uh, and we won uh, an injunction in the federal district court, uh, which ruled that the state universities can't enforce the Stop Woke Act against public university uh, faculty members. Uh, the state has since gone to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and uh, is doing two things there. One, they want the court, the 11th Circuit, to overrule the district court and reinstate the act. Uh, but in the meantime, they want to be able to enforce the law even while the court is considering the merits of the law. Uh, and so they have asked the, or they had asked the 11th Circuit to stay the injunction, meaning allow them to start enforcing the law again. And the 11th Circuit issued a very uh, brisk order uh, saying, no, we're, we're going to keep the injunction in place uh, while this appeal is pending. Uh, so that's not a ruling on the merits. Uh, it could be a recognition by the court that the state of Florida has not shown that there's an urgent need to enforce the law right now, uh, or the court may have you know, considered the merits uh, and thought that the state is not likely to succeed on the merits here. We really don't know from the text of the order yet. And it's, it's somewhat difficult to read tea leaves here. Yeah. Can you remind our listeners what the Stop Woke Act did as it applied to higher education, right? It restrict instructions on eight concepts related to race, sex, uh, color, national origin, for example. 
Sure, it established a sort of a blacklist of eight concepts that uh, if a faculty member speaking to students sitting in a university classroom, by and large adults uh, who are there voluntarily, uh, if a faculty member endorses any of these concepts, for example, if they say, you know, I think affirmative action is a good policy, the state considers that to be de facto harassment. Uh, and uh, that violates the First Amendment rights of faculty, uh, because if you're a faculty member and you've been hired to teach a class on a given subject, you need to have the leeway in the breathing room to discuss all views about that concept or that matter. Yeah, well, as a matter of first principles here, I think it's important to kind of walk our listeners through a reminder of the special role that colleges and universities play in America, in American society, but also the unique freedoms that college faculty members have that perhaps teachers in a compulsory K through 12 environment don't have, right? They have academic freedom, which gives them a, the freedom to sort of opine, discuss, play devil's advocacy surrounding these concepts, uh, that are trying to be restricted, uh, in the stop woke act. And that's, that's exactly right. K through 12 and the collegiate environment are different. And, and they are different because they are uh, accomplishing their goals through different means. In K through 12, uh, teachers are uh, conveying a, a message uh, or conveying uh, the local community's values and views uh, about a number of different subjects. And people are going to disagree about what the right things to be taught are in K through 12 or what should or shouldn't be taught in through, through uh, K through 12. But it's uh, different than higher education. In higher education, uh, students are there voluntarily. Nobody has to go to college. The state isn't forcing you to go to college. Uh, and they're there to select the courses that they want to uh, learn from. And when they're in those courses, they're supposed to be learning from a variety of perspectives. It's about entertaining different ideas and coming to your own conclusion about which one is the right idea. Uh, it's, it is being taught how to think, not what to think. And if, you, uh, if the state comes in and puts its uh, finger on the, the scales and starts picking winners and losers about which ideas are the right ones or wrong ones, that forecloses the range of ideas that students can encounter. And that's, that frustrates the university's purpose uh, because it, it prevents students from being able to grapple with those ideas, whether or not they agree with them. So the ruling from the district court came down on November 17th. The court ruled that the act was, quote, positively dystopian. Uh, it said that it officially bans professors from expressing disfavored viewpoints in university classrooms while permitting unfettered expression of the opposite viewpoints. And then it invoked George Orwell to drive home that, quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. So this was this district court ruling was a ruling on the merits of the act, correct? Correct. The Stop Oak Act definitely fetters discussion. <laughs> so, <laughs> Joe is our Joe is our office uh, pun guy. So you might hear a few of those here on this podcast. Joe, I want to turn it over to you then because there was a bill introduced in the Florida State House, Bill 999, uh, that tried to or is trying to expand the Stop Woke Act in a number of ways. Is that not correct? No, that's right. Um, HB 999 
and its Senate counterpart, SB 266, uh, would both take the Stop Woke Act and double down on the provisions in it that intrude in the classroom. Uh, it, it also, uh, both of them also target tenure uh, and have a number of other you know, problems, but primarily uh, the House version of the bill, the two are not identical, uh, the House version has a prohibition on the same concepts that are banned from college classrooms in the Stop Woke Act from being included in general education courses, but then also has a provision very similar to the Stop Woke Act that says, oh, and you also can't expend any funds on any activities that include, you know, including teaching, uh, uh, the you know, or promoting the concept. So, uh, arguably, it isn't only cabin to general education classes that would have the ban. Uh, so, so that's a very serious uh, problem. The House version, unlike the Senate version, also lists majors uh, that are, you know, just outright banned uh, because of the likelihood that they might teach those concepts. So it says here, and Adam did a a really good write-up of the House bill for FIRE's website, Uh, in limiting what can be taught in general education courses, the the measure would prohibit faculty teaching these courses from including material that teaches, that quote, teaches identity politics, close quote, which the bill defines as, quote, critical race theory. which the bill does not define. It does not define what critical race theory is. Is there a meaningful distinction for the purposes of what a state um, may determine is taught in a college or university environment between a general education course and an elective? Or is it all, does it all have the same sort of academic freedom considerations that must be um, taken seriously? I think they're serious academic freedom considerations regardless, you know, of the context. Uh, you know, if faculty members are muzzled in any classes, then students are hearing from faculty who can't give them complete answers, um, who can't really explore things uh, where they should naturally be explored. So uh, the case law doesn't make a distinction uh, between general education courses and uh, courses that uh, are merely electives. And one other kind of wrinkle here is even if they were trying to only get at electives, they don't quite do that with the language in this bill because you can have a general education requirement. Uh, let's say, for example, it's a you must take at least one class in any of the humanities. Well, there might be 300 different classes that could fill that requirement. So it's not exactly like a student is forced to take any one of those particular, you know, courses in order to in order to satisfy the requirements. So in essence, they're all electives that they need to choose between. But you have, you know, so so here, if it's if it's allowed for credit to be considered a general education course, you can't have any of these concepts promoted in them. So that's a really wide swath of cl- of classes that all of a sudden, you know, are restricted from speaking things because the government has views that they don't want students to hear. Do both bills, the Senate and the House bill, Joe, 
prohibit teaching uh, that could suggest that America was anything other than, quote, a new nation based on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence, close quote? I'd have to, I'd have to look back at the Senate version to confirm uh, that it's in both bills. Um, but there's, there are provisions in both bills that are similar that are not binding. They're kind of the sense of the uh, legislature saying that uh, you know, any material that's unproven or exploratory is better left for electives and not in general course requirements. Now, it's not a re- now, it's not binding law in that paragraph, or at least it doesn't appear to be. But it uh, it certainly is discouraging and chilling of a lot of speech. I don't know how you teach any science class if you can't include anything that's theoretical. And since the general education requirements do have science components, uh, it's a, it's a significant, uh, problem that the legislature is sending a clear signal to boards of governors and boards of trustees who do set these things that we don't want you to allow, you know, theoretical unproven, you know, content in, in these general education courses, uh, because it's not unpredictable. It's easy to predict them to lock, to be in lockstep to avoid the ire of the legislature later. I mean, that, that seems to reach a lot of, potentially reach a lot of subjects in sciences and the humanities, right? I mean, uh, who's going to decide what's theoretical or unproven or exploratory? Uh, I mean, I think you could plausibly say almost anything could fit those definitions if you take the broad view that, you know, all knowledge is kind of ultimately always provisional, right? And that's that's why we have colleges and universities, because we're constantly, you know, turning over theories and explanations and trying to arrive at that closer approximation of the truth. Yeah. The language in the bill, it said is quote, unproven theoretical or exploratory content uh, prohibits that in general education courses, at least in the house bill, which, you know, includes uh, the theory of gravity, perhaps, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. I mean, these are things that presumably you would want taught in many general education courses. But also just when you think about English classes and literature classes, you know, you read literature for a lot of reasons. Uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, great, you know, works include all kinds of themes in them. Uh, and how much of, uh, how many pages have to be dedicated towards one of the characters thinking through one of these issues and taking a stance on one of these issues for it to count as promoting it. It's really unworkable. Uh, if any institution were to ever do what the legislature is suggesting in the bill. I want to ask about the provision in HB 999 that would eliminate any major reminder that, quote, engenders beliefs in the concepts defined in the Stop Woke Act, as well as any major or minor in critical race theory, gender studies, or intersectionality, or any derivative major or minor of these belief systems. I, I went to Indiana University where the state had essentially said, Indiana University, you are the liberal arts school. Purdue University, you are the STEM school. Indiana, you're not going to have engineering. Purdue, you are going to have engineering. How do we think through what a state legislature can do in determining which majors are granted at different universities, different public universities? Yeah, I think I think that that's a real, you know, challenge but i but the way uh i believe it should be handled is that legislatures 
can make non-ideological you know, decisions. We don't need another dental school in the state because we already have so many unemployed dentists. Uh, that's not targeting particular you know, views. They can decide to dedicate resources to make sure you know, that you know, we, we make sure we have a law school in the state. But once you start getting down the road of deciding which ideas aren't allowed in college classrooms, they've, they, they've gone off the rails. And when you're targeting majors uh, because of the ideas that might be discussed in them, as is the case in these bills, plainly on, its, on the face of the text of the bills themselves, uh, you're definitely engaged in viewpoint-based uh, decision-making here, which uh, I think runs afoul of you know, decades of uh, United States Supreme Court precedent that talks about how uh, the First Amendment and academic freedom don't tolerate laws that cast a pall of orthodoxy over the classroom. So uh, it's not that the government never has any control over picking and choosing between programs, but the way they are doing it here is clearly motivated by politics, and that's a no-no. I think that the more blatant the political intrusion, the less difficult the question becomes. And that's why you see, uh, you know, Stanley Kurtz in National Review uh, agreeing with Fire on this point, saying that the intrusions in terms of what can be taught in the classroom uh, are uh, unconstitutional. And, you know, despite his agreement with uh, other parts of the bill that deal with uh, trying to rein in some of the administrative abuses that that have been seen in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, at administrative levels. So, um, you know, I think it becomes less of a tough call the the more blatantly political it becomes. There's also provision of this bill that you alluded to earlier, Joe, um, relating to tenure. Tenure is the protection given to some faculty members. Uh, you know, gives them job protection so that they can theoretically pursue controversial uh, research if necessary. So they have the kind of freedom, uh, freedom to write and explore different ideas, uh, not subject to the nakedly political considerations that we discussed earlier um, from state legislatures or maybe those in the college or university administration. But this bill would require that all faculty hiring be conducted uh, by the board of trustees or an institution's president. Uh, while recognizing that universities may review a faculty member's tenure at any time with cause, but also authorize the board of trustees to, at the request of the chair of the board chair, review any faculty member's tenure status. And that language omits the with cause language. So it's effectively an elimination of tenure protections, or it removes the shared government governance concern or the shared government's kind of principles that animated faculty hiring uh, and firing, right? That's right. Uh, the bill, at least HB 99, has two sections dealing with tenure. The first one says with cause that it could be initiated. The second one does not. Um, I've spoken to the bill sponsor. He tells me 
that he thinks that that was an error and he's willing to revisit that particular aspect of the bill. But we haven't seen an amendment to clean it up yet. So right now, just looking at the text of what would happen in the bill, you have you know, a tenure review that can be initiated without cause. It's supposed to be analyzed on the back end after it's been initiated based on criteria that's set forth in the Board of Governors uh, regulations that deal with post-tenure review that are currently in place, but those can be changed at any time. Um, the Board of Governors you know, are political appointees uh, as well, so there's that uh, element here. Uh, Is the Board of Governors their difference than the trustees of each university? Yes. And, uh, but, uh, but, you know, you're, you're looking at a situation where right now in the regulations, there's post-tenure review every five years and the bill sponsors say that the only thing they want to do on that provision is make sure that if there is specific cause, it can be initiated in between those five years. And we've talked to them at great length about how if that's the intent, that isn't what's in the bill. The bill allows it to be initiated at uh, at any time and the, the second time it mentions post-tenure review. So uh, I'm optimistic that we'll uh, get that change uh, before this crosses the finish line, but the bills have a tremendous amount of uh, momentum. Uh, the majority party uh, can push through what they want and uh, remains to be seen if any of the changes will actually be made. Is faculty hiring usually conducted by the board of trustees or an institution's president, or is it usually, or at least signed off by them? You guys know, you know, I'm no expert on how it uh, works, but uh, there is usually some sort of shared governance, right? But it, it, it's, it's not as I hear it from other faculty groups while I was on the ground in Florida, uh, they would tell you that it is extremely counterproductive for them to be cut out of the loop to the extent that they are, you know, in this bill, because how is the board of trustees to evaluate the expertise of a subject matter person without really including through the hiring process? And they hire hundreds, if not thousands of people during the year. And how much energy and resources will it divert from the board of trustees to be reviewing each and every hire beyond just a and it's And it's all, and it's all higher. It's not, it's not just tenured track faculty, for example, Do you know? I want to, you know, reread, you know, the bill to make sure that 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 I give you a a good answer on that. It does. Re- it reminds me though of uh, the you know the Nicole Hannah Jones case that we had. Yeah, in North um, Carolina. Yeah, where she uh, there was a decision right, at the academic level to hire her with tenure, and then the board of trustees right uh, uh, didn't approve that decision. And I remember, you know, this is one data point, but I remember in that case that uh, there was talk about how typically it would just be sort of a rubber stamp in those situations where if if there was departmental level approval or or approval by the dean that the board of trustees, they would, you know, have to approve the decision ultimately. But generally, they were going to defer to the decision making at the academic level. So, Joe, you mentioned that this bill... House Bill 999 and the Senate Companion are moving, I'm assuming, through committees, and that's where you were testifying on them. And there doesn't seem to be any hang-up within the legislature so far? Well, I mean, like I said, they have the numbers. And 
you know, there is a view in conservative circles. It's becoming more and more common that higher education administrations are hostile to them. And, you know, they're viewing bills like this as a way to fight back. So they're highly motivated to exert uh, their level of control. Um, you know, we, it, it's short-sighted for sure. Uh, I, I think they're not quite appreciating the extent to which these norms and the case law protect the ability of conservative faculty when they're targeted by administrative administrations. And, you know, it's either tenure or it's these First Amendment and academic freedom uh, line of cases that are the line of defense when people are targeted for political reasons and drummed out of the academy. So uh, they're looking at punching across a, a win in the battle but probably going to lose the war if their view ever prevailed. Yeah, I think the concern, right, from conservative legislators across the country is that these institutions are captured by the political left and that you need sort of the blunt tool of government to recapture them, uh, so to speak. But often you're writing headlong into the First Amendment in doing so. I want to move now to uh, off campus and discuss two additional bills making their way through the Florida state legislature. I want to talk first about Senate Bill 1316, which uh, Adam, you wrote about on March 3rd, along with FIRE's legal director, Will Creeley, and you, you outline what this bill would do. And I'm going to just quote the piece here. The bill would require anyone other than a newspaper journalist who writes online about Florida's government leaders, that is its governor, lieutenant governor, cabinet officer, or any member of the state legislature, these writers would need to register with the state if they receive any compensation for their post, and they must do so within five days and then file a monthly report with state regulators if they write about Florida officials that month. Those who violate the law risk up to $2,500 in fines per report. Adam, what's wrong with this? It's the government creating a list of people that is writing about the government. Uh, it doesn't advance uh, or directly advance any real government interest. It's not tethered, for example, to elections. Uh, it would mean, uh, you know, I, the, the uh, lawmaker sponsoring the bill has, has sort of tried to walk it back and say this is really about uh, electoral politics, but it would only apply to people who are writing about uh, people who are already in office, not the people who are running for office. Uh, and even if it were just about uh, the people running for office, uh, I don't know that that accomplishes a, a real state interest here to require people to go and register with the state uh, if they are writing about elections and somebody uh, pays them. Because not all people who are being paid to write about elections are being paid by you know someone with skin in the game with the election. That could just be a Google advertisement or Google giving advertising money uh, based on the number of views of a given article. Uh, so... Uh, it's it's particularly problematic also because uh, some people write anonymously and our uh, culture, our history uh, embraces the First Amendment right to anonymous speech. Uh, our you know, founding fathers often wrote anonymously while they were shaping the uh, documents that uh, came to shape our system of governance. Uh, and under this law, it would steamroll uh, if it were adopted, and it's it's not going to pass. Uh, but if it were to pass, it would steamroll the uh, ability of 
uh, people to write online anonymously. You know, one other rationale that that supporters of the bill have floated about is that it's really about grassroots lobbying, and and that just doesn't hold water either because it's so. Well, broadly, can you explain what gra- grassroots lobbying is, Joe? Grassroots for- lobbying is any time someone tries to persuade others to engage directly with lawmakers on something that is in fact pending. If there's a bill that's been introduced and you want to say support it or you know oppose it, reach out to your congressman, your legislator, your governor, your president, whomever it is, that you know can count as uh, as grassroots lobbying. But for something to be lobbying, something has to be pending. Writing about an elected official after they have done something to criticize them is never lobbying in any form because it's already happened. So um, you know that that other you know rationale that that we've been hearing that it's really just trying to regulate, you know, people getting you know receiving money, you know, to then to try to persuade people to to weigh in on laws is just not true. Um, first of all, there are, are you know articles that are written just to educate people what's in laws without taking positions, you know, that might stir people to want on their own to take action. You know, this is written so broadly. Anytime you talk about an elected official, yeah, and our, I mean, you would know more about the grassroots lobbying regulations, but writing about a proposed bill, even arguing against it in writing, is not does not traditionally count as grassroots lobbying. And 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 would it even do so if you were writing about it in a way that says, "Okay, now you, dear reader." go and write to your congressperson about this. It, it could in some instances, but th- again, that's not an issue here in this bill. This bill is nowhere close to that because it, again, it covers any mention of the elected officials, you know, at all. And, you know, that includes, you know, includes, you know, when they're running for reelection, that includes, you know, commenting on what they already did in bills that already passed, it includes non-advocacy, you know, just describing the bills, any mention of them all, or we saw them at the park, you know, uh, at the county fair, any mention. So it's, it's, it, it, it's overbreath is stunning. I mean, it would capture, I mean, I'm sitting here to record this podcast and prepare. I'm reading from fires, various statements and blog posts (laughs) about all the different bills in Florida. I mean, presumably we would be required to register with the state at risk of fine or punishment uh, for any of these blog posts. Like, Adam, you're not a lobbyist, but you would be required to register with the state because you wrote Fire's statement about this bill, right? Yeah. And anytime we mention the name of the lawmakers involved or uh, dareth say the name of the governor, uh, you know, while it's, uh, you know, in the articles, it's covered here. And you know, as Adam, you know, really powerfully, you know, explained in his various different pieces, um, it's a constitutional uh, non-starter. Uh, and to his credit, I think the governor recognized that and uh, set out the gate that it doesn't have his support. Just to be safe, every time I write about a public official, I print it out and send a copy of it to them with my driver's license, just so they're <laughs> aware of it. <laughs> they let you have a driver's license? Not a real one. The, the, uh, the other thing about this, maybe you guys, uh, all three of you are lawyers, and I am not one, can educate me about this. Hasn't the Supreme Court considered news reporter carve like a news 
newspaper licensing schemes before? Like it, it has a carve out, anyone other than a newspaper journalist, but wouldn't that require identifying what a journalist is and therefore, I mean, s- sort of licensing them as journalists and everyone else, hey, you've got to register as a lobbyist, so to speak? We're in kind of a newer world, you know, where in the past you had mainstream, you know, media and not much else, but with the advent of the internet and, you know, and social media, you know, people, everyday citizens are writing things that other people are actually seeing and consuming. I think, you know, that's largely, you know, a a great thing. And for lawmakers who are trying to navigate that, they're grossly overstepping uh, the core First Amendment freedoms, you know, that are necessary here. And um, I'm, I'm glad that the Florida legislature does not appear to have any interest in moving this pr- particular proposal forward. Um, you know, because as I said earlier, they have the numbers to ram through whatever they want. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, American history, Adam. I don't think... Thomas Paine or the Federalists or Anti-Federalists, the great pamphleteers of the American founding, like they were the, essentially the bloggers of their day, right? Um, they didn't always write for newspapers, so to speak. Um, so it's, it's dangerous just from like a first principles American history standpoint, right? And you're just, you're kind of overturning uh, many of the many of the um, devices that were used to found this country or or restricting them if they were used today. The last bill I want to talk about, and Joe, um, Joe before we move on, did you weren't in Florida to testify on that bill, were you? No, that that one's not going to get hearings. I don't think. I think it's. I think it was dead on arrival. Okay, so there were hearings on House Bill nine nine nine, and then were you in the state to testify? on on 991 which yes. is the the okay so let me let me lay this one out this is the other bill that fire wrote about on our website on February 21st it sounds like it's very much still alive and you were in Florida talking about that our listeners will be familiar with New York Times v Sullivan by this point two podcasts ago we had JT Morris uh, Matt Schaefer and Floyd Abrams on the show to discuss New York Times v Sullivan we we talked about how New York Times v Sullivan stemmed from uh, a case during the civil rights movement in which civil rights activists published an ad in uh, the New York Times that was critical of sheriff's office in a southern state and uh, its actions with regard to civil rights demonstrators. It included some factual inaccuracies in that. And um, they were sued um, by, I believe, Mr. Sullivan um, for defamation. And defamation... Uh, was a tool used in the South to often try and silence uh, critics of Southern state governments. Uh, the cases often went before juries, all white juries that were very friendly to law enforcement in, in those states, and huge judgments were awarded um, to plaintiffs in defamation cases. So much so that the New York Times restricted its reporting uh, in some of these states just because of the liabilities that came along with, you know, um, a potential inaccuracy, uh, regardless of whether that inaccuracy was purposeful, negligent, or just, you know, the sort of inaccuracies that sometimes come when you put a lot of words on a page. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately 
ruled that in order for uh, public officials to sue for defamation, they would have to prove uh, that the defendant spoke with actual malice. That is, the defendant knew his or her words were false or spoke with reckless disregard for the truth. And in subsequent years, uh, that standard uh, was expanded to not just apply to public officials, but also public figures, as well as um, this category of people called limited purpose public figures. So what House Bill uh, 991 would do if passed into law is it would narrow the list of people who may be deemed public figures, meaning a wider range of commentary on today's public issues could result in a successful defamation lawsuit. I'm reading uh, here from Joe's statement. The bill also declares that speech from anonymous sources, we just talked about anonymous sources, will be presumed false and that failure to, quote, verify or corroborate an alleged defamatory statement, close quote, will constitute actual malice. What's more, the bill proposes awarding costs and attorney's fees to any plaintiff who wins a defamation suit, making it even riskier for both everyday citizens and the free press to engage with important issues. Joe, can you talk a little bit about this one and how it's moving through the state legislature? Um, looks like almost two months since it was passed or since it was introduced, excuse me. Well, um, I just got back from Florida yesterday to testify uh, against the Senate uh, version of the bill. Last week, I testified against the House version that they're doing hearings you know, quickly on both indicates that they're highly motivated uh, to move uh, the bills, you know, forward. Um, it's very serious problems, uh, with the bills, uh, in a number of ways, they contradict New York times versus Sullivan and many of, uh, the cases, uh, that, uh, follow along the line of New York times versus Sullivan, like Rosenblum versus Metro media, a bunch of others. Um, and, uh, one of the key things that, uh, that, that the bills would do is would reduce the types of people that are deemed, you know, public figures or context where someone is considered a public figure and thus where the higher standard of actual malice would apply, uh, if they were to bring a defamation suit. I know that's heavy legalese and I'll try to unpack that, uh, in, in, in an accessible way, you know, sometimes I know this will shock the listeners here. Sometimes people will make claims, including claims about elected officials that prove untrue when they're put under scrutiny, they'll get a fact wrong. I'm going to slow down for a second, just to make it clear. I'm not talking about when they're wrong about something about opinion that, you know, there are t- things that are sometimes verifiable facts and sometimes people get them wrong. And o- opinion is an absolute defense, right? In defamation, you're not supposed to, you know, people are allowed to have their opinions. Um, but uh, defamation standards are designed to allow people to also be wrong on facts and not create strict liability for, you know, you get a fact wrong in a criticism of uh, of a public controversy, and now all of a sudden you need to defend yourself in a lawsuit till the bitter end, however long the litigation, however expensive litigation becomes. So with respect to talking about public controversies, the Supreme Court sets, you know, the actual malice standard, uh, which is a higher standard that shows that you need to have a rec- you know, to have recklessly, you know, uh, you know, expressed a falsehood uh, that you, you know, 
you know, knew was a falsehood. Um, and others can dive in if they want to talk about, you know, that standard and in, in, in greater, you know, detail. But that's the general gist, you know, for for the lay people um, listening. And the idea is you need to have wiggle room for people to be wrong, even on facts, if you want to be able to have good debate, whether it's about the individual people who are public figures or public controversies that, you know, even, you know, people who aren't famous find themselves involved in because the public needs to be able to debate and discuss those, all of those issues with sufficient room uh, for error. Uh, So the bill takes that standard and says a few things about it. One is if someone is, uh, if the the allegation of the defamation is about something unrelated to why that person is a public figure – then the actual malice standard doesn't apply and a lower standard applies. So one of the key examples that comes to my mind is, you know, one you might all be familiar with, which is Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. When that exchange happened, Donald Trump was not famous because of his interactions with Stormy Daniels. Whether it was because he was famous because he was a presidential candidate or even predating that as an investor and a, uh, a person in reality TV, he was famous for a lot of reasons. But because he wasn't famous for, his alleg- for, for what happened with Stormy Daniels, the argument under this bill is the negligence standard should apply to, hit, to that case if he's suing for defamation to silence you know, any of his critics about that. Oh, in- interesting. So... You know, I always thought about it breaking down this way, right? So you have Donald Trump. Let's just, you know, he let's say he's a he's a public official, right? He's president at this time. Uh, for the actions taken pursuant to his official duties under this bill, he'd be considered a public official. But for example, actions taken that are not pursuant to his duties, he'd be considered a a public figure. Maybe it's his, you know. I don't know, his relationships with his business partners, things things like that. I don't know. And, and it was the public figure stuff that would get a lower standard under this bill than the actual malice standard. Sure. Right. But also things in But his you're saying it's sit- more situational, right? Right. They're they're making it situational in a way. But you know, when you're dealing with elected officials, you know, usually you would want the actual malice standard to apply across the board, no matter what, because we tend to consider their character to be relevant to their work. But here, the bill, if you're just looking at the text, maybe they were trying to accomplish what you were just describing. But the actual text of the bill says, you look at the context in which it's discussed, and if it and if the issue at heart in the defamation case isn't related to the reason why they are a public official, a lower standard applies. So... You know, that therein lies the problem. Even if they were trying to accomplish what you described, they haven't done so in the text of this law. Um, but there are other ways that they undermine actual malice as well. For example, they say that if you rely on an anonymous source, that anonymous source is presumed to be false. And that automatically flips the burden. You have to prove the, tr- the truthfulness as opposed to someone alleging defamation proving the falsity. It's an anonymous source. And then they go on to say that if you refuse to disclose the source, then only the negligence standard will apply, not actual malice. 
in that scenario. So even if you had 50 corroborating documents, if you refuse to disclose the source, negligence will be the standard. So that would be the standard for, say, Watergate, the Watergate reporting, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, the legislature, the legislators in support of the bill would claim that that's not the case, uh, that that's not what they intended, that they intended to, you know, show us the other corroborating stuff, you know, to win the case. And they'll say that they say that they call it the Journalism 101 bill because they say journalists you know, want to corroborate their sources anyway, even if it's anonymous. And, you know, I've asked, they, the, the sponsors will say, and they have said in the hearings, you know, we've asked a bunch of journalists and not one of them have said that they would ever publish something where they didn't find some other corroborating source. Um, but it's important to keep in mind, the bill doesn't only talk about journalists. The bill applies to anyone, you know, who can be sued for defamation if you rely on an anonymous source. And I think one thing that they're not thinking about there are a few number of things they're not thinking about, but one of them is political candidates themselves make claims about their opponents. Sometimes they cite studies. They don't remember the source of that study, but they remember something in the back of their head. If they get a stat wrong in an assertion of fact in a criticism, and they can't reveal the source of their stat, now a negligence standard applies to the case. Like That's just like one you know, context. Conservative media... We heard witnesses during the hearings talk about how a lot of conservative, you know, talk radio, it, you know, the way it operates is to be particularly provocative. Uh, they're opening themselves to, up to tremendous liability if they're lower standards. Uh, and we had one uh, radio station that hosts, con- you know, conservative talk radio say that they might have to cancel those shows because the liability will be just too, too great. Well, presumably this would get challenged if passed into law, right, Aaron? Oh, yeah. I, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and by the way, I think that's a good, a good point that Joe just raised about how, because I think, you know, this legislation gets framed as we can't keep letting like the mainstream media or the, you know, the liberal media keep getting away with publishing all these lies and, and ruining people's reputations and everything. But you know, it's, it's, but this really, it's not just going to affect the mainstream media. It's going to affect conservative media and it's going to affect, you know, everyday people, uh, bloggers, people on social media who are criticizing public officials. Um, so, you know, you really, you really need to zoom out and look at what's going to be the impact of this bill, uh, more broadly. And at the end of the day, you know, it's just not, uh, it's not compatible with uh, a vision of this country as, you know, a free democracy where people need to have the breathing space to engage in, in you know, what the Supreme Court called you know, uninhibited, robust discussion on public issues. Uh, because if you know that, you know, you're going to face the threat of financial ruin for even unwittingly saying something inaccurate, that's just going to have a huge chilling effect on public debate. And it's, you know, it might reduce some of the inaccurate statements that get put out there, but it's also going to leave a lot of true things unsaid because people are just going to pull back on a public commentary and not not going to take the risk, right? They're not going to want to be dragged into court. And one of the things I think is worth adding is that it's not always when you're thinking about defamation about who will win at the end of the defamation lawsuit. Part of the reason why you have an actual malice standard that's so high is so that at the very first stage at motions of dismiss, you know, lawsuits can be tossed because even if you thought that you could win at the end of a three-year court battle, what 
you know, average day citizen wants to run the risk that they'll have to defend themselves in court for three years. And who can everyone afford a lawyer to defend them? You know, let's say you have a winning you know, argument if it's argued properly. There's no guarantee you're going to have counsel. Now, that's less of a problem for the for the professional journalists who, you know, who work for the New York Times. Uh, but this bill isn't limited to only, you know, changing the standards as to them. Right. And, and on that note, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but another thing that these bills do, or at least one of them does, is basically neutralize Florida's anti-slap law. Uh, so it kind of re- reverses that too, where now if you're a plaintiff who's successful in the defamation suit, uh, you're awarded attorney's fees. Uh, whereas the anti-slap law in many states uh, is passed to provide a mechanism for defendants in defamation suits to get meritless or frivolous defamation lawsuits dismissed quickly uh, because there's this phenomenon of you know, wealthy and powerful people using defamation suits as a tool to intimidate their critics into silence. So they bring these suits, even if they know that you know, they don't have a chance of ultimately winning in court, but just the prospect of being sued, right, will cause a lot of people to just silence themselves and self-censor. Um, so uh, so this bill would effectively dismantle uh, Florida's anti-slap law and, and remove that disincentive for, pe- for people to bring meritless defamation suits. And includes an incentive to do it because you can win attorney's fees without any risk of having to pay the other side if you're wrong. You know, it turns an anti-slap law into a slap law in a number in a number of ways, and you know, in 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 some respects, you know, you might consider that to be one of the most troubling aspects of the bill because it'll be much easier to challenge in court the changes to the actual malice standard. You know, they're unlikely to prevail there unless the Supreme Court has a you know, change in heart. I mean, there's so much case law and, and it's so uh, obviously unconstitutional under the existing law. Joe, do you, so do you think that this uh, bill is an attempt to get, ultimately get the, the Supreme Court to revisit New York Times v. Sullivan? I mean, I think that, you know, you, you, ha- you think through the motives of all of the different actors from, you know, the governor's office to the actual sponsors of the bill to the various different lawmakers who vote for it. And in that chain, uh, absolutely, at least some of them actively want to tee up a challenge uh, to New York Times versus Sullivan. I suspect that there are others uh, who might just uh, on their own think that New York Times versus Sullivan was too protective and want to see if there are you know, the bill sponsor describes it as clarifying some things about the actual malice standard. Um, I think that's understating what's happening. Uh, so uh, I, I certainly think that it, the dominant motivation here is to tee up a potential conflict. All right. I want to move on, you know, in the last couple of minutes we have here. We've talked about two trends that are not only happening in Florida, but happening in conservative legislatures across the country. One is a, a, an attempt to restrict the teaching of divisive topics or so-called critical race theory in the higher educational environment. Uh, we've also talked about attacks from conservative legislatures on 
the actual malice standard from New York Times v. Sullivan. But we're also seeing something that's at least new to me, or at least that I've started noticing in the past couple of months, which are efforts to restrict um, drag performances within the states, either through uh, legislatures or through the use of law enforcement's um, power to uh, withhold liquor license or revoke liquor license uh, using obscenity laws that might be on the book in each state. And there was a um, interesting story that broke in December where there was a drag show uh, called A Drag Queen Christmas that was set to be hosted at the historic Plaza Live Theater in Orlando. Uh, now, this is a drag show that I guess tours across the country around Christmas time. Uh, it had toured, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, I think for eight previous years in the state of Florida or at least a couple of years it had been in the state of Florida. Um, it's a drag show. So, you know, it features campy skits like screwed off the red nippled man deer, uh, some shimmying, some bare chested men, um, a hip thrust or two. I'm reading here from the description provided by the Miami Herald, um, and uh, three minors happened to atta attend this performance. Um, they appeared to be accompanied by adults. Um, and state law enforcement had attended, um, I'm assuming at the behest of uh, officials within the state, to see if there had been anything lewd or obscene happening uh, at the performance for which it might be illegal to have minors in attendance. What ended up happening is that the state's Department of Business and Professional Regulation proceeded to file a complaint, and I'm reading here from the Miami Herald, against the nonprofit that runs Plaza Live, claiming the venue had illegally exposed children to sexual content. And the complaint issued on February 3rd, happens to be my birthday, uh, seeks to strip the small nonprofit theater of its liquor license as a result of the alleged exposure uh, of minors to sexual content. Now, Adam, you had actually filed a public records request uh, to, I'm assuming, the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, to figure out what did they find at their performance that might have justified the revocation of the Plaza Live's liquor license, which I should note is essentially a death sentence for a theater like uh, Plaza Live. And your public records request, which was shared with the Miami Herald, ended up being fodder for this very lengthy <laughs> report that they issued. So Adam, can you talk a little bit about what your public records found and what the Miami Herald reported? Sure. So I actually filed a couple of records requests. Uh, the first one was asking for copies of the complaints that they had received about these events because the uh, some uh, one of the officials had sent letters to the organizers or the hosts of these events saying hey we we think that something illicit is going on here you better knock it off and we've you know there have been complaints so I asked for copies of the complaints and they responded by sending me a list of tweets uh, from libs of TikTok and representative Marjorie Taylor Green. Uh, and a number of other people complaining about these events. Uh, it wasn't actually someone writing to the department and saying, hey, we've got a problem here. Uh, I'd like you to take action. Uh, so then I also asked for uh, copies of the investigative records and the records about the uh, 
a complaint that the department itself filed uh, to go after the liquor licenses. Uh, and uh, buried in the middle of uh, the documents that they sent was a report from the undercover officers uh, that had been sent into the venue uh, by the department's leadership to ascertain what was going on here. And in that report, uh, the officers dutifully report back that they had seen no illicit conduct uh, during the performance. They said that there were uh, some provocative clothing uh, choices, like I think they mentioned like a, a bikini or short shorts uh, or something like that. Uh, but they didn't witness any nudity. They didn't witness any lewd conduct. Uh, and they also noted that they had filmed a number or a, a significant portion of the event uh, on iPhones issued to them by the state of Florida. Um, so we also got the videos for that. Uh, and, you know, the, the videos are, are pretty much a, a stone's throw away from what you might see during a Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, you know, maybe it's something that uh, parents would choose not to send their children to see or that they would, you know, turn off the TV uh, if it were on television. Um, but is it unlawful? I, I would be shocked if this met uh, <laughs> obscenity standards. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking here about Florida's decency laws, obscenity standards. I mean, how do I what are those, right? And, you know, what are they as applied to adults? And then what are they as applied to minors? Because it's my understanding that there are two slightly different standards, none of which appear to be met in, in this case. But, how, you know, how do we how do we think about those sorts of issues? Because a lot of what you're seeing with the restrictions on drag isn't necessarily an attempt to ban them uh, for consenting adults. It's an attempt to uh, restrict minors' access to these um shows, uh, even if accompanied by an adult. Now I should note, you can, you can attend an R rated movie where you'd probably see, you know, where you could see worse material or more indecent material as to minors, uh, in some of the shows, but you know, is, is, how is dragged, you know, so can you guys help me kind of play through this one a little bit? Uh, yeah, well, starting with the obscenity standard, it's, uh, so there was a Supreme court decision in the seventies, Miller v. California, uh, that, basically laid out like a three prong test for determining when speech is obscene. And so the three elements are first, whether the average person uh, applying standards of the community uh, would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest. So kind of like an excessive interest in, in sex. Um, and then the second element is that the work actually, or the speech, you know, the content, the performance, whatever it is, actually depicts in a patently offensive way, sexual conduct, right? So you, so it can't just be that you're um, just kind of dancing around in a skimpy outfit. There actually has to be sexual conduct taking place. Um, and then the third element is even if you fulfill those two elements, you still have to satisfy the third element, which is that the work taken as a whole lacks any serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So it's an extremely high bar um, to, to uh, find something obscene. And like you mentioned, there is also, uh, a, there, there can be speech that's not obscene as to adults, but can be considered legally obscene as to minors. It's basically just the same test, but you just throw in the phrase like as to minors. So, you know, the, the average person, would think that the work appeals to the prurient interest as to minors, lacks serious political, artistic, scientific value as to minors. 
Um, and, and still a high bar. You still need some kind of, you know, depiction of sexual conduct. And yeah, I don't, th- I don't think there's any evidence that any of these drag shows that uh, the Florida agency is going after for their liquor license. I don't think there's any evidence from what we've seen that there's, that this would even approach the bar for obscenity uh, for adults or minors. Yeah. Anything approaching what you might see uh, if you're 16 year olds and year old and just scrolling TikTok, for example. Right. 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 Or, or like I think Adam said before, you know, the halftime show. Um, right. If you, if you lower that bar too much, then the police can go on stage and arrest Rihanna. Um, and so there's a reason that, that that's such a strict standard. Or, or Lenny Bruce, as they did in the 60s, right? And, you know, the bills across the country are not all written the same. And there are a number of different pitfalls that they can have that would make them unconstitutional in a variety of ways. The two ways that I'm focused on, you know, at FIRE, not to say that there aren't additional ways that they might be unconstitutional, is when they take all drag performances, even when they don't come anywhere close to the Miller, you know, standard of obscenity or the harmful to minors standard, just say, just being gender nonconforming and lip syncing, you know, no minor can see that. I mean, that would exclude people from, you know, minors from being present for a screening of Mrs. Doubtfire or almost any traditional performance of Shakespeare or a screening of Tootsie for those of that, you know, generation. Uh, we're, in fact, testifying against uh, a bill that would do that in Nebraska tomorrow. Um, and uh, my colleague, our colleague, uh, John Coleman, is testifying for fire tomorrow on that. Um, so, uh, so uh, and the other way is even if it did meet the Miller standards and could be prohibited, uh, regulated, maybe even, you know, criminalized, uh, if the law would allow people who are, for lack of a better term, heteronormative to engage in conduct that reaches those standards, but still prevent people uh, who are, you know, in drag from doing the same thing, then they are targeting on basis of viewpoint. So, you know, so we're looking for either of those two uh, problems when we, when we look at bills. What's, what's complicated here for the public more for the public than for the lawyers, is that sometimes they're just adding drag in as a category in an already existing statute where the statute puts in things that try to get at the Miller test uh, already. So there's a, so the, the bill that's pending only mentions drag that doesn't reach the level of, but it's amending it into a statute that built, that already builds in that standard. So we have to look at two things the bill that's pending and what it's adding to before we determine if it has that, you know, that problem, but a lot of them do. Yeah. I mean, and to be clear, there presumably could be drag shows that do meet the um, obscenity standard as applied to minors, but you need to take that on a case by case basis and see if it meets the test blanket bans on drag um, without any considerations as to what the performance entails, uh, risks being unconstitutional. Um, I kept you long. I want to thank you all for covering this. We did have a lot to cover. I will link (laughs) all these bills and these lawsuit developments and these stories in the show notes for any of our listeners who want to gather more information about them. But um, until next time, Joe, Aaron, Adam, thanks again for appearing on the show. Thanks, Nico. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
this episode was hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleagues, Ella Ross and Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak uh, by subscribing to our YouTube channel where you can see a video of this conversation. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're on Facebook at So To Speak Podcast. And you can send us email feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. We take reviews. They help us attract new listeners to the show. So please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. 